John chapter 3 is where we're going to be. John 3, verses 31 through 36, in a message I've entitled, Jesus is Life. Now, I know we've got many guests who are with us today that may not be with us on a regular basis. And so let me give you a brief introduction as to how I landed on this paragraph to be the paragraph, the passage that I would preach this Easter Sunday morning. Back in November of last year, I went away on a spiritual retreat to really seek the Lord and ask for his direction of where we would go as a church and where I would go as far as my preaching schedule and calendar. And I really sensed the Lord lead me to, to preach through the Gospel of John. And that's where we've been since uh, the 1st of January. This is actually the 15th consecutive message in John that we've had. And so whenever I landed there, I immediately went through my Bible in the 21 chapters, and I began breaking down the 21 chapters of John, and I broke it down into 85 individual sermons. And so I have all the sermons planned out, Lord willing, that we'll look at in John. And then I started taking that breakdown of the sermons and plotting it on the calendar. And when I got to Easter Sunday 2022, normally what I do is I'll just put a block out there from my regular preaching and preach a special standalone Easter sermon. But whenever I read the paragraph we're going to study today and the fact that it fell on Easter Sunday, I said, I can't wait to preach this paragraph on Easter Sunday. Because what this paragraph is for us is it's John writing essentially a summary statement of the first three chapters of his letter, his gospel account, and really it summarizes all the great, magnificent, supernatural realities about the person and the character of Jesus. And I don't know if you know it or not, but Easter is all about Jesus. And so as we come to look today, we're going to study about Jesus, and not just any record of Jesus, but we're going to study a record of Jesus from his best friend, John. John was one of the first two disciples who were called to follow Jesus. John was one who went out and got other people to follow Jesus. John was one of the inner three, but not just the inner three of John, James, and Peter, but also he was one of the inner, inner one who was literally leaning up against Jesus. He was his best friend earthly. He outlived all the other disciples. Even in his old age, he recollected on the greatness of his friend, and his Savior, Jesus. And so as we look at this last paragraph of chapter 3, John is summarizing for us truths about Jesus that are profound and that are life-transforming. So look with me in the Bible. This is the inspired, infallible Word of God. Listen to it. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now this paragraph that we just read, beginning in verse 31, 
follows one of the shortest yet most profound verses, not only in this chapter, not only in this book, but in the entirety of the Bible. It's a very short verse that was uttered from the lips of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, in verse 30 of chapter 3, said this, He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Now, just a little background for those that weren't with us last week as we studied that passage. John said those words because his disciples, his followers, came to him and said, John, Rabbi, this Jesus that you got started in ministry, this Jesus that you set off into ministry, he's now eclipsing your ministry. The throngs of people that used to come and listen to you preach, John, they're now going to listen to Jesus preach. What are you going to do about it? And John said, listen, this has been the whole point. I've got to move to the background. He's got to move to the foreground. He must increase, and I must decrease. And what I humbly submit to you, that I believe this sentence should be the life motto, the mission statement for every human being. Jesus must increase in your life. You must decrease in your life. Why can I say that? Because Jesus is life. Jesus is life. Now, if we were honest, we would have to admit that most of us live our lives as if we're the point. You may not say it out loud, but the way you live, uh, you're the center of the universe. You're the focus of your life. You're the reason you exist. And I can tell you, as a pastor, I'm not immune from that self-centered mindset. And I'll tell you, when it pops up the most in my own life, something happens, a switch turns off or on when I get behind the wheel. Anybody with me on that? If we're at a red light and you're in front of me and it turns green, if you don't move within a millisecond, you'll likely hear me say something to the effect of, is that the not right shade of green you're looking for? Right? If I'm behind you and you're making a left-hand turn and you're waiting for the traffic to clear and there have been multiple opportunities, you'll likely hear me say, you got to want it. you got to want it. Why? Because I think when I'm driving, everyone else exists to help me get to where I'm going in the quickest possible means. But I must decrease. He must increase. And John the Baptist comes along with this motto because he came to recognize and he came to believe Jesus is life. And from the paragraph we've just read at the end of chapter 3, I want to give us four reasons of why Jesus is life. That's what we're all looking for. And why, because he is life, he must increase and we must decrease. The first proof of my thesis this morning is this. Number one, because of where he comes from because of where he comes from. We must be at the bottom. Christ must be at the top because of where Jesus came from. Verse 31 is something like a sandwich if you look at it. Uh, the top layer of bread and the bottom layer of bread kind of hold it all together, and then you've got the middle section. Look at verse 31 again. The top layer of bread says this, he who comes from above is above all. The bottom layer of bread at the end of the verse, he who comes from heaven is above all. So we got those two pieces of bread about the nature of Jesus. We're in the middle of this sandwich. He who is of the earth 
belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. That's all of us. We are of the earth. We came from the earth. Our origin is earthy. Jesus is not from earth. Jesus is the only human who has ever walked on this planet that has a divine, heavenly origin. We say you must become first, we become last, you must increase, we must decrease. Why? Because of where he comes from. You know, where you come from, come from really impacts your view of life. It impacts uh, who you are. It impacts what you love. Now, people can often have a lot of pride about where they come from, right? Have you ever met somebody like that, that they just think where they come, everything's better, everything's bigger? They're called Texans. <laughs> everything's better in Texas. The barbecue tastes better in Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas. Never mind that it's 110 mind-numbing heat in Texas, but everything's better in Texas. Just up the road from us in Saudi Daisy, they've got a motto. If you ain't from Saudi, you ain't nobody. <laughs> right? You ain't from Saudi, you ain't nobody. When people ask me where I'm from, I proudly say I'm from Florida. Why? Because I was born at Tampa General Hospital in Tampa, Florida in 1969. Therefore, I come by my Florida sports team allegiances very honestly, right? I was thinking about it the other day. I've been in Tennessee, lived in Tennessee full-time since 1999. That's 23 years. This month, April, I moved here, April of 99. Five years of my life, we were in South Georgia, and I served a church down there. But 25 years of my life, I've lived in Florida, the balance. So I was thinking about it the other day. In just two more years, I will have lived in Tennessee longer than I lived in my home state of Florida. Now, do you think, when I cross that threshold in 2024 that I will magically pull for the Vols over the Gators. Do you think when I cross that threshold that no longer the Tampa Bay Buccaneers will be my major team, it's going to be the Tennessee Titans? Ain't no cotton-picking way. Because where I come from informs who I am. Jesus came from heaven. That informs who he is. Regardless of what specific location you came from on this planet, it informs a lot about you. Uh, many of you know my dad immigrated to this country from Switzerland. He came here when he was 19 years old. And I grew up with that heritage. We had Swiss flags and Swiss paraphernalia and Swiss cowbells and pictures of our Swiss family members around the house. You, you likely had grew up with grandparents. You may have never known pictures of them on shelves or on the wall. You are shaped by your ancestry. And here's the thing. All of us have a common ancestor. Doesn't matter if you came from Saudi or Switzerland, somewhere in between. We all have a common ancestor. We're all part of the same family. And our great, 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 great grandfather, his name is Adam. And we all share his nature. We all share his proclivities. We all share his sinfulness. We are by nature sinful, and we are by choice sinful, disobedient to God. We all have inherited that sin. It's inescapable. But Jesus did not. We came from earth. <laughs> he came from above. All of us need to be born again, born of the Spirit, born of heaven. He doesn't have to be born of heaven because he was from heaven. But what this also means is because Jesus comes from above, 
he also speaks with authority. Notice again what the text says, the beginning and the ending of verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. And then the verse in, he who comes from heaven is above all. Now, those of us who are Christians and who have been Christians a long time, we can heartily say amen to that, but do we actually live like that? That Jesus has complete and total authority in our lives. Does he have authority over your children? Does Jesus have authority over their sports schedules? Does he have authority over your job, over your finances? Does he have authority over your life, your relationships? Many would say, yes, Jesus, you are above all, except when it comes to inconveniencing the things I really want to do or the passions I really want to have. If Jesus is above all, then it stands to reason in my life, he must increase, I must decrease because Jesus is life because of where he comes from. Here's the second support of my thesis. Number two, because of the words he speaks. Jesus is life, and he must become greater, and we must become less because of the words he speaks. Look at verse 32 and 34. He, Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. He must increase because of the words he speaks. Remember, he comes from heaven, therefore he speaks with ultimate authority on heavenly matters, on spiritual matters, on life and death matters. He's been there. He's done that. He created heaven. Whatever that looks like and whatever that is, Jesus is the one from heaven, and so he speaks with authority. Over the last 10, 20, 30 years, there have been many books, published movies that have been produced about people who have allegedly died and made a little visit to heaven and came back to tell about it. Many people have suggested these books to me. Oh, you need to read this book. I said, nah, I'm really not interested. But you don't understand. This six-year-old boy died, and he went to heaven, and he came back, and he's telling us about it. Let me tell you the best authority on heaven, the one who came from there, the one who created it, the one who knows all about it. And Christians devour these things and read these books all the while the book that declares what heaven is really like sits on a shelf. Three chapters from here, in John chapter 6, Jesus will begin speaking to those who are following him, the crowds, the throngs, the myriads of people. He'll begin speaking to them some very difficult words laying out the cost of true discipleship, the cost of truly following him. And what happens? People begin to peel away. People begin to leave following Jesus. And so Jesus comes and he has a very honest conversation with his disciples. Very frank conversation. Look what he says in John chapter 6, beginning of verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Peter, the spokesman, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Many people are so in step with their earthly heritage, they are so dominated by earthly priorities that they cannot receive the heavenly message. Well, they'll accept other messages, but they won't accept this message. Why not? Because, because as a whole, 
No one is interested in the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Now, don't misunderstand me. People are interested in Jesus. People want to research Jesus. People want to know about Jesus as a historical figure. At this time of year especially, you go to the grocery store and you see the checkout line, and you'll see just about every magazine has a depiction, a representation of what they think Jesus is like. In fact, I've got some examples of those. Newsweek, Time, Life Magazine, National Geographic. This time of the year, they put Jesus on their cover. Why? Because they sell. Why? Because people are curious. People are interested in Jesus. They're curious about who he is and what he's done. They're curious about Jesus, but they're not interested in accepting Jesus for who he really is, the Son of God. So we're only in chapter 3 of our study through the Gospel of John, and already Jesus has begun to make some very profound, very difficult statements. Here in John 3, verse 3, he said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Well, that's not a very nice thing to say, Jesus. You're not the Jesus I was looking for. You mean to tell me, Jesus, you've got some kind of criteria that people have to meet before they enter your kingdom? Yes. This week, Amy and I went to the Dollar Tree here, which now should be called the Dollar 25 Tree. Thank you, inflation. <laughs> and when we checked out, the cashier, our, our total ended in a seven. You remember this, Amy? And the cashier says, a little poem. Five, six, seven, everybody goes to heaven. I looked at him and I said, that ain't right. <laughs> everybody goes to heaven. I go to a lot of funerals. I do a lot of funerals as a pastor. I've never been to a funeral, and I've never done a funeral where people don't say, well, you know, he's in a better place. Never once have I heard anyone say, no matter how much of a hellion is in that casket, oh, he's in a much worse place now. <laughs> Ever heard anybody say that? Because we live with this delusion, five, six, seven, everybody goes to heaven. That ain't true. Jesus said, unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're born of the Spirit, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, people are interested in Jesus. They like to hear about Jesus. They like the sentimentality of Christmas. They like the rejuvenation of Easter. Oh, but when there is actually discipleship calls as a Christian, oh, I don't want that Jesus. Verse 32, look at it again. It says, no one receives his testimony. Then verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So clearly the no one of verse 32 is comparatively, relatively. Again, 100% people say he's in a better place, but according to this passage, hardly anyone <laughs> receives the testimony of Jesus. But those who do set his, set his seal to this, that God is true. Now, you're probably familiar with this ancient uh, practice of using a wax 
seal. People would take melted wax and put it on a letter or a document or an envelope or a scroll, and they would take their signet ring or they would take some other piece of carved metal with their seal, and they would imprint their seal upon the wax. This is the word that John is using here. Now, what's he saying? Whoever believes and receives the testimony of Jesus sets his seal to this, that God is true. Now, let me say it in the reverse. Whoever does not receive the testimony of Jesus sets his seal to this, that God is a liar. So when you affirm that Jesus is of heavenly origin, when you affirm that he has all authority and rule, when you receive his testimony, you are saying, God, you are true. What does it mean to accept his testimony? It means to believe what he claims. It means to trust in what he professes. It means to depend upon who he is and the provision he's made in your place. And we'll come back around to that when we get to verse 36 in just a moment. So here's the bottom line. Jesus is the only means for true life, and we know this is true because, number one, of where he comes from, number two, the words he speaks, but here's the third point, number three, because of what he's been given. Because of what he's been given. Verse 35 begins with those words, the Father loves the Son. Would you circle that word loves on your outline? There will be much more in the chapters to follow here in the Gospel of John where John will reveal under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the inner workings of the Trinity, the Trinitarian love relationship, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, you may look at this and you say, well, big deal. The Father loves the Son. Up in verse 16, John three sixteen, it says, for God so loved the world. I mean, God loves everybody, right? God loves everybody. And now God loves the Son. It is true, but this is a unique inner Trinitarian love. This is the love that God the Father has for his one and only Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my only begotten Son. This is the Son that bears the exact imprint of His nature. This is the one through whom the universe was created. This is the one who is right now sustaining the world. This is the one who is the only natural Son of God. And God says, I love my Son. If you ignore and you disregard His Son, Jesus, you'll have to answer to the Father. You know, we've got a lot of teachers and coaches in our congregation. And I'm sure every teacher and every coach here could tell some story about some dad <laughs> who never saw anything wrong in their son. If there's a problem at the school, there's a problem with the grades, if there's a problem in the behavior, well, it's the teacher's fault, it's the administration's fault, it's the curriculum's fault, it's never little Johnny's fault. Some of you have coached. You've had the parents who always question why their kid isn't getting more playing time, right? I've never met a coach who didn't want to win. And they're going to play the players they think give them the best shot to win. A little moment of honest confession here. I've been that dad too. Because of my love for my children. But I'm an imperfect father. He is a perfect father. And the father 
loves the Son, and the Son has never, ever done anything wrong. And God the Father sent the Son into the world, and the world as a whole has rejected him. Now, you may say to God, I don't have anything against your son. I mean, I'm here at church on Easter Sunday. I'm kind of listening to the sermon about your son. I sang some of the songs about your son. And the father would say to you, I'm not looking for fans of my son. I'm looking for followers. It's real easy to be a fan. Rah, rah, go Jesus. Yeah, put on the foam finger. He's number one. It's real easy to be a fan. It's completely different to be a follower. The Father loves the Son. And when you love, what do you do? You give. We love our children. We love our grandchildren. On Easter, because we love, we give. We give our children candy. (laughs) Chocolate rabbits, because we love our kids. Reese's eggs, because we love our kids. We don't give Marshmallow peeps because we love our kids. (laughs) The father loves the son. And look at what the father has given to the son. Verse 35. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. What's the all things? All things. All authority. All power. All rule. All dominion. All positions. All things have been given to the Son because the Father loves the Son. In fact, two chapters from now, in John chapter 5, Jesus will say very specifically what this all things includes. Look at John chapter 5, verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Every single human being created by God is accountable to their Creator. And as such, every single one of us in this room will stand before the judgment seat of God. But do you know who's going to be deliberating in the courtroom of heaven? you know who's going to be sitting in judgment over your life? Do you know whose hands, whose nail-pierced hands will be holding the righteous gavel to declare you guilty or not guilty? All judgment has been given to the Son. He's been given all things, all authority. And as such, He... And he alone has the capacity to give us life. So he must increase. We must decrease. And that leads to the fourth thing I want us to see why Jesus is life. Number four, because of why he came. Because of why he came. John, the gospel writer, concludes this chapter by saying, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus came to bestow, Jesus came to give eternal life to everyone who believes in him. Friends, here on this Easter morning, this is as straightforward as it can get. You either believe or you don't. You either trust in him or you don't. The most important question in your life is not, where am I going to go to college? The most important question in your life is not, what is my career path going to be? What team am I going to root for? Even, who am I going to marry? That is not the most important question in your life. 
the most important question in your life is, do you trust in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? And verse 36 puts it very clearly and straightforward in no uncertain terms. And many people don't like verse 36 and verses like it because it communicates a very hard truth. You may have heard people say something to this effect. Well, the God I believe in, and they fill in the blank. The God I believe in, you know, would never be angry. The God I believe in would never display his wrath against people. The God I believe in, he would never judge people. The God I believe in would never send people to hell. The God I believe in would never uh, do anything bad to anybody. He just wants to give everybody a great big hug. That's the God I believe in. You know what that is? That's breaking the first of the Ten Commandments. You've just created a God in your own image. You've just made a God who likes everything you like. He scores 100% on the compatibility profile on the dating website. It's a perfect match. This God likes everything I like, and he hates everything I hate. We're made for each other. Yeah, because you just made him. It's not the real God. It's not the God of the Bible. Again, look at verse 36, specifically the last phrase. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, being under the wrath of God is our default position. You were not born good. You were not born righteous. You were not born holy. You were born sinful under the wrath of God. That's what it means. It remains on you. It's not been lifted. It's not been removed. It's not been assuaged by someone else. All of us were born sinners, not children of God, but children of wrath. And as such, we've all incurred the righteous judgment that we deserve, the wrath of God. Those who do not believe in Jesus will remain under the wrath of God. You know, as human beings, we like to categorize people. It's part of who we are. And culture kind of accentuates that. Rich, poor. Old, young. Ugly, pretty. Thin, not so thin, thin. Republican, Democrat. At the end of the day, there's only two categories that matter. Do you believe or not believe? Are you saved or are you lost? Now, if you think about it here, it's interesting that the determining factor, according to this verse, is those who believe and those who do not, what's the word? Obey. Now, if I was writing the Bible, which I didn't, that's not the word I would choose. I went to my thesaurus, which I always keep a tab open on my computer of a thesaurus when I'm writing, and I typed in the word believe. I scrolled down and looked at the synonyms, then I looked down and looked at the antonyms of the thesaurus. Here's some antonyms for the word believe. Abandon, deny, disbelieve, discard, dismiss, dispute, disregard, exclude, forget, ignore, neglect, refuse, reject. And I would say, yes, all those things is what it means to not believe in Jesus. You abandon Jesus. You deny him. You disbelieve in him. You discard him. You dismiss Jesus, dispute Jesus, disregard Jesus, exclude him, forget him, ignore him, neglect him, refuse him. You reject Jesus. But that's not the word John chose. He said, those who do not believe do not obey the Son. And I was scratching my head. Why did he use this kind of language? Here's why. Because to believe in Jesus is not a suggestion. 
To believe in Jesus is not just a recommendation. The Father and Creator of the universe says, believe in my Son, it's a command. And if you do not believe, you are creating the the worst treason possible. You've disobeyed the command of God. You did not obey the Son. And whoever does not obey the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. But here's the beauty of the gospel. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And that's present tense language. Not whoever believes in the Son will have eternal life. One day, in the sweet by and by, on the golden shore, in the future, no, has, present tense, right now. How in the world can Jesus make such a promise that whoever believes in him will have eternal life? Here's how, because Jesus is life. Jesus is life. And he took in your place the wrath of God, the penalty of death, that you deserved and that I deserved. But do you want to know the ultimate reason why Jesus can make this promise that whoever believes in him will have life? It's because of what we're celebrating today. Because he was resurrected from the dead. Because he defeated death. In the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in the gospel of John, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus predicts his resurrection multiple times. Notice the language. We'll stay in the Gospel of John in John chapter 10. See if this prediction, the language Jesus uses, sounds familiar to what we've been studying this morning. John 10, 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Did you catch it? The Father loves the Son, has given all things to the Son, including the responsibility and the opportunity to lay down his life and to raise it up again. And because Jesus is alive, he can offer you today the legitimate offer of eternal life from this day forward. Earlier, we sang a version of probably the most famous Christian hymn or song, Amazing Grace. Every funeral I perform when I do the graveside of a funeral, after the, we read the 23rd Psalm and I make the committal, I'll then lead whoever's gathered around that tomb to sing the first verse of Amazing Grace. And everybody sings along. It's amazing. Everybody knows the words. They sing it. I'm not sure if everybody really believes the words, especially the first verse. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I don't know if people really believe they're wretched. Again, I looked up the word wretch in a dictionary. Here's the way the dictionary describes that defines the word wretch, a person of despicable or base character. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved someone of despicable and base character like me. People would see this and they would say, "Uh, I know some wretches, but I'm not really a wretch. 
I'm a pretty good person. Listen, we're all wretches, every single one of us. An amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. In just a moment, the band is going to come back up, and they're going to sing a new song. Most of you have probably not heard this song. It's a song that's only been out for about a year. In the last six months or so, the Lord has used this song to minister to my heart gospel truths in a powerful way. And I asked them, I said, I'd really love for you to sing this song on Easter Sunday. I want you to see the lyrics to the song before we sing it. It starts off by using that word, wretch. (laughs) I was a wretch. I remember who I was. Anybody remember who you were? I was lost. I was blind. I was running out of time. Sin separated. The breach was far too wide, but from the far side of the chasm, you held me in your sight. So you made a way across the great divide, left behind heaven's throne to build it here inside. And there at the cross, you paid the debt I owed, broke my chains, freed my soul. For the first time, I have hope. And here's the chorus. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Thank you, Jesus, it has washed me white. Thank you, Jesus, you have saved my life, brought me from the darkness into glorious light. We're about to have a response to the Word of God. And earlier this morning, I was praying, God, just be true to your Word. Transform people's lives. If this morning you'd like to make the decision to trust Jesus, to believe in Him, to leave the kingdom of darkness and to enter into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of life and light. As we sing this song, I'm going to be here at the front. I'm going to ask our other elders to come forward and be available. I'd love to talk to you about that. And that leads to my last thought. For every wretch who obeys the command to believe in Jesus, there is the promise of life eternal. Let's go to him in prayer.